Hello, this is Eric Bryant, pastor at Gateway Church in South Austin. If you want more resources, including the notes from this message, go to ericbryant.org. Or to find out more about our community, go to gatewaychurch.com south. So if you missed last week, we did a little bit more on who Paul is. And Paul, his story you can read in the book of Acts, last verse of chapter 8. You see him there holding the cloaks of those throwing stones, killing Stephen. Chapter 9, he has this miraculous encounter with Jesus. He then becomes a follower of Jesus. They are not so sure they want to trust him. And so then eventually as he grows in his faith and he becomes someone who's advocating that Jesus is the Messiah, he ends up uh, being commissioned out and starting churches. And then a lot of these letters are writing those, uh, uh, basically those churches and church leaders. If you can go to the next slide, I want to show you his missionary journeys and all those uh, lines. I mean, he went everywhere. Uh, And what was amazing is he lived during the Roman Empire if you know the phrase Pax Romana from school, uh, there was a peace. It was an oppressed peace, <laughs> but there wasn't war all the time, and so you could travel more freely. They had Roman roads, aqueducts, so it was like the internet for the world. You had access to parts of the world you didn't really have access to before. And so these are just three of his journeys. One of his journeys, it's, it's, a, it's a ship to Rome, some would say, well, that's kind of like another missionary journey. Then others say, well, after Acts 28, he was freed and had another journey. And that's when he wrote some of the other letters. Um, and we can talk about that more next week when we look at First and Second Timothy. But basically, everywhere he went, he was talking about Jesus. And the message of Jesus was subversive, so he often ended up in prison. And that's where we find him now, writing this letter to the Colossians, probably in about the year 8060. So that's 30 years after Jesus had died and risen from the dead. And so 30 years later, there's now churches springing up. And the church of Colossae, he did not start. So he's writing this letter to a church that he'd heard about. He knew some of the people there. He'd even led some of the people there to faith. And so uh, some think he wrote this from Rome. Some think he wrote this from Ephesus. I kind of lean towards Ephesus. He writes uh, to Philemon at the same time. If you missed that message, uh, you can go back uh, to our, well, ericbryant.org and listen to that message on Philemon. Uh, they referenced it at the end of the Bible Project video there. Uh, but in that letter, he says, keep that room ready. I should be there soon. Rome is way further away than Ephesus. Um, N.T. Wright thinks it's Ephesus. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, it doesn't matter. Main thing was he was in jail and writing letters, right? Um, but Um, Here's how it's broken down by the Bible Project. Colossians chapter 1 is divided into the supremacy of Jesus, and then the sufferings of Paul, then the pressures of the world, and then the resurrection life. The idea of living post-resurrection. I have been made alive by Jesus. We're experiencing a glimpse of heaven on earth in the way we live. Right? Okay. So let's look at the supremacy of Jesus. And you have to remember, what Jesus did for us was spiritual. It was cosmic. It's unseen. And I just want to pull out two verses, verse 13 and 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
I mean, this is miraculous. This is supernatural. We are forgiven of everything we've done and will do. And it's not just a, um, you feel better in the moment. It's a change in who you are and where you live. You and I live in an invisible kingdom. And everywhere we go, we bring that kingdom with us. Right? We're now in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the Son of God, rescued from the kingdom of darkness. And what he did for us also has practical applications. And this is, a remember, a real letter written to real people whose lives were changing. Uh, Paul was meeting up with Epaphras, the pastor of the Colossian church. And he's so moved by what's happening that he writes to them and gives this letter to them along with Onesimus and Tychicus, and they take these letters back to the, the folks that they were addressed to. But listen to what happens in verses six through eight. This is what, he, he hears about the church and he wants to affirm them. He says this, I, I've heard that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Wouldn't that be cool if uh, people could describe us in the same way, right? That our reputation precedes us, that people hear that, wow, the message of Jesus is bearing fruit in our lives and through our lives, that, that we have this love that comes from the Spirit, a supernatural kind of love that you can't just manufacture on your own. And then he goes on, uh, verses 9 through 12, and he says this. Uh, and this is where you see this dance between what we do as followers of Jesus and what God has done for us and, and how he helps us. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. No longer in the dark, we're now in the light, right? Here's what he does for us. Here's what God does for us. When you say, yes, I want to follow you. Yes, I need your forgiveness. What you did on the cross to count for me. He gives us knowledge of him. Now, knowledge, this word has more of a connotation of experiential, not just head knowledge. Like, you know, have you been to Blues on the Green? You might know what it is, but you don't know Blues on the Green until you've actually experienced Blues on the Green. It is great, and it is hot, and it is dusty, and it is loud. And it, you don't know it till you've experienced it, right? So you have an experiential knowledge of God. What else does he give us? He gives us wisdom, understanding. Um, from the beginning of the scriptures, Proverbs mentions it. The, uh, does anyone know how you get to, uh, exp how, how can you find the wisdom of God? Well, yes, there's a verse. Something is the beginning. Fear of the Lord. Now that's a weird phrase. Right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But if you think about it, it's this idea of reverence, of awe, of great respect, that you literally trust 
him, even though you don't fully understand it. Um, what's interesting at the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 is they were told, if you eat of the tree, this one tree I don't want you to eat of, you will die. Well, then they ate of it, but they didn't immediately die. What died was their connection with God. They were separated from God. See, God was more merciful. But here's what's interesting. It says that once they ate it and they heard God coming, they were afraid. If they had had fear of God, a reverence, a respect, a, I will do what he asked because I trust him implicitly, before they ate of it, they wouldn't have experienced the fear after it. All right? Some of us are afraid of a, a condemning and angry God and what we're invited to is actually trust a loving God, fear, respect him, uh, not be wise in our own eyes, but to trust in his wisdom, even when we don't understand it. All right. Uh, so he gives us this wisdom, understanding, and he helps us live a life worthy of the calling we've received, which means we're bearing fruit, we're growing in knowledge, we're strengthened in power. That same power that rose Jesus from the dead Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, is what we have when we have the Spirit of God. He's also helping us endure, to remain patient, and even experience joy. And he qualifies us to share in the inheritance as holy people. So by saying, yes, I need you, Jesus, all of this happens to us. And then he enables us and helps us grow to become who he's created us to be. So then, uh, back to the verse that I read earlier about this transition from station one, kingdom of darkness, to station two. He then goes into how, um, who Jesus really is. Through the Son of God, we have redemption. We have forgiveness of our sins. So listen to verses 15 and 16, to this incredible description of who Jesus is. 15 and following. The Son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is more than a great teacher. He was not just a prophet. He is God. And if you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. Jesus is God walking among us. Now, Let's talk about the Trinity. Have you ever heard the word the Trinity? I'm not talking about the matrix. Uh, I'm talking about this idea that there is one God made up of three persons. I think it was Tim Keller that said, it's such a beautiful and difficult to understand concept that no one would have made it up. <laughs> and so this idea that there for all eternity was uh, uh, what we call uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, interacting, loving, glorifying, serving. They created us to share the beauty of creation with God. And so in our minds, we try to think of him like, you know, I'm a dad, I'm a son, 
I'm a brother. One person, three different distinctions. But th it's different than that. Uh, another great analogy we use is, is like the sun in the sky. The sun is both an actual mass, but it also is our source of heat and our source of light. Light, heat, and that actual ball in the sky. It's one entity, but it has these three experiences. Again, it's not quite like that either. Um, it's hard for us to understand, um, but the way Rick Warren described it is this. He's a pastor out of California. If God was small enough for you to completely understand him, he wouldn't be big enough for you to completely trust him. All right? Uh, and here's, here's what I'll say. If we're not careful, some of us have created a version of God that is not as big as he truly is. Um, sometimes we have this version of God or even of Jesus of, you know, uh, someone we can control. Uh, and we, we need to let him be all of who he is and allow him to guide us rather than us guide him. Sometimes our prayers are, here, God, here's your to-do list for the day, right? Prayer should actually be our connection to God and allowing him to reframe, reorient the direction that we're headed based on who he is. Now, I'll send you in the notes this week a link um, where I try to unpack this idea of God three in one. Uh, but what's fascinating, when you read through the Hebrew scriptures, you can see God the Father, you can see the Son, uh, Son of Man in Ezekiel and, da and Daniel, and you can see the Spirit um, all throughout the scripture. So that's why Paul, who was very much a devoted Jew, it was not hard for him to understand this. And he quickly connects Father, Son, and Spirit um, throughout his writings. It was not hard for him to see one God in three persons. For us, it's a, maybe a little bit more difficult. Let's keep going. So here's why God came to be with us and walk among us. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So he is rescuing us, transforming us, reconciling us, moving us from being alienated to friends with God, other passages might tell us. He sees us as holy because of what Jesus did for us. And then the next section is Paul's sufferings. Uh, he just talks about how he's contending for their faith, which literally means to struggle uh, with skill and commitment and opposing whatever is not faith, contending for them. So I want to look for just a, a minute at a passage that truly like changed my life because I finally understood what it means to follow Jesus. Again, I grew up in a context where it felt much more like you got to do enough good to get to God. And so even when I came to faith, there was a, I had kind of a legalistic bent, um, and that wasn't healthy for me either. Uh, when you become legalist, you can also become very quickly judgmental. If you're not doing this, you might not be as close to Jesus as I am, that kind of thing. I remember about that age, my, my I think I was 17, my mom would tell me I was being holier than thou, which I'd never heard that phrase, but maybe you've heard it before. And uh, that was not a compliment. 
And I remember a few times she'd say, why don't you go back to your room and try that Bible study again? You know, because you are, you are, this is not who God's creating you to be. Um, and so here's, here's how you live for Jesus. Here's how you can experience transformation in your life. It's right there in chapter two, verse six. How do you do it? So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So how do we do this? Paul used the same phrases over and over in the scriptures. You can see Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 there. And so we see, how did we, it says, so then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, that's how you should live for him. Well, how did we receive him? By grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We live our lives by grace through faith. We choose to follow him by faith. That's our part. God, I need you. I trust you. And he gives us new life because of his grace. Grace is undeserved love. So here's the thing. Here's what happens. How can you change the same way he rescued you? Jesus, I need your help. So it's not like, okay, thank you for saving me. Now I'm going to go figure this out on my own. The same surrender that began your relationship with Jesus is the same surrender you need to overcome everything in front of you. Now, here's what's really amazing is then, so if our part is faith, his part is grace. What if I don't have enough faith? Well, he even helps us with that. There's this beautiful story where Jesus is walking along and this man comes up, his child is sick. And, and he asked Jesus to heal his child. And Jesus says, all you must do is believe. And he says, I do believe. And then he says, help me with my unbelief. He quickly acknowledges, I can't even believe. I mean, obviously I'm here. That's why I'm desperate enough that I'm here. But I still, I'm not sure. Help me. Give me faith. It's okay to pray. God, give me more faith. Faith is actually also a spiritual gift. Some people just have the ability to just know that God's going to come through. Um, but others of us, sometimes we have to, uh, John Burke, one of the first quotes I heard him say on a Sunday morning that I've never forgotten is, if you don't have enough hope, borrow it from someone else. Some of us are hope sharers. You have uh, the gift of faith or you have positivity. Share that with people who don't. Help them reframe and see it. And if you need more faith, ask God for it, right? So Paul then goes into what God did for us and how that changes us. Colossians 2, 9 through 15. For in Christ, listen to this. Again, I think about this. This is, this is him explaining what happened with Jesus and what happens with us. For in Christ, the fullness of the deity, the fullness of God lives in bodily form. And now in Christ, You have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. 
When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. When you say yes to Jesus, he transforms you. And then we have to be reminded of that transformation every single day. The world wants you to forget. And when we mess up, we have to remind ourselves, oh, wait, that's not me anymore. That's the old me. But that's not who I am in Christ. And now when I baptize somebody, I always say this. As I'm baptizing, I realize now I need to say it after I pull them out of the water because they can't hear me underneath there. Uh, but we, I always say, uh, I'm baptizing you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then I baptize them. Then I bring them out. You've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk a new life. That comes from this passage right here. Yeah, Mike, you had a question? Well, no, just acknowledging that there is a Yeah. Yeah. talks about that. That's right. There is a death. The old life is dead, and then with God, they give something new. That's right. Which is God's creation. Yeah, that's right. And then what they are calling me is that that old person is gone. Yeah. Yeah. If you think of it this way, yeah, when you are, uh, you cannot experience the resurrection without the crucifixion. So until you surrender your life, you die to your old life, ask God to help. Like I surrender my life. I don't want to be that person anymore. He makes you new. Now you can act like the old person, but that's not you anymore. You're alive. You're no longer a walking zombie, right? You were dead spiritually, but now you're alive. You can act like that, but that's not who you are. And the scriptures talk often, and we're about to get there, this battle between the flesh and the spirit on this side of eternity. Yeah. I think that sermon or the talk that we had last week kind of touched on that where he said that inside of our bodies, yeah. our bodies have been established. Yeah. Not easy to get rid of. If you missed the message from J.P. Moreland, it was very, very helpful and talked about even like science shows you some of the the ruts in our brain, but we can relearn. Uh, there's like science and biology behind what Paul wrote about 2,000 years ago. All right. But we have to, uh, with God's help, start living this new life because the rut of the past will get sucked back into. But it's a spiritual transformation that you can't always see. I mean, it says in this passage that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. There's like a spiritual battle happening all around us we cannot see. Work that he's been done. And so, now what's fascinating is what darkness and evil thought was that they were winning. Right? They convinced Judas to turn on Jesus. They thought they were defeating the Son of God, completely unaware. That was his plan all along, was to give his life. See, you and I, we, we, I mean, you watch, I mean, we watch film. It's an American culture. How do you defeat evil? You kill it. <laughs> like, we, it, it's whoever has the bigger guns, whoever hits harder, like, it's always about violence versus violence, but more violence beats more violence. 
and Jesus comes and says, there's a whole different way. You know what? Give me your best shot. And he took it. And it killed him. But what they did not know is that death could not keep him in the tomb. He defeated death. He defeated evil. And that's where that phrase, he was the firstborn. He was the first of the new resurrected life that all of humanity is invited to be a part of this new life. And we get to live kind of in the already happening. We're already new, but not yet fully new, right? And so it's this fascinating, uh, remarkable moment. They thought they'd won, and they actually played right into what he had planned all along, all right? All right, so the rest of Colossians 2, Paul goes on to remind the Colossians, you don't have to live the same way anymore. You don't have to give in to the pagan philosophies and the religious tradition that you used to because those weren't transforming you, right? You've already tried that way. Why go back to that? Why add that to the mix? And then Colossians 3, he goes into a similar passage to what we read in Ephesians and Galatians before where he's writing about taking off the old life and putting on the new life. Let's look at that. Colossians 3, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Keep your mind in the right place where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here's the get rid of. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. We'll talk about more of that in a moment. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge or in knowledge in the image of its creator. And then very similar to Galatians 3.28, here in this resurrected life, in this new community, there is no Gentile or Jew. There's no difference based on ethnicity, circumcised or uncircumcised. No difference based on your spiritual background. No difference between barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, economic status, where you're from. But Christ is all and is in all. Now, I want to point out something I found uh, years ago at the church I was at in Los Angeles. It's called Mosaic. Before that, it was called the Church on Brady, and the pastor's name was Tom Wolfe. And he described this, and it made so much sense after I read it. Because as you start to read Paul's letters, it starts to sound like the same sort of pattern. He kind of follows the same sort of pattern. So Tom Wolfe called it the universal discipleship pattern. And if you think about it, it, in many ways it makes sense. How did Paul establish leadership so quickly, so solidly, so reproducibly that he was able to start churches and leave and start churches and leave and then write back? And, and so in some ways, some think, Tom Wolfe included, that in 2 Timothy 1.13 where it says, retain the standard, that's the word pattern. So don't forget the standard. Don't forget the pattern I taught you. And you see that in Romans 6.17. The pattern of teaching, the type of teaching. Don't forget this pattern. So here's the pattern he, he suggests. Um, by the way, Colossians and Ephesians are the clearest uh, example of this pattern because in many ways they're writing forward. They're addressing principles, not backward 
responding to problems. So these were more general letters written to pass along to other churches. Um, but basically, he arranges all of his letters, Paul does, as belief and behavior, instructions and ethics, doctrine and duties. All right, so here he talks about first the rock, build your life on God's foundation. Then in all of his letters, he talks about following, that you must, through personal commitment with Jesus, surrender to Jesus and follow him. Then he talks about walking with Jesus. Personally, the new believer must begin to walk worthy, a life worthy of Christ. You'll see this over and over. And then we're supposed to put off the old and put on the new. And then this idea of the word and the spirit. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and be filled with the spirit. That comes up in all of his letters in some way or another. And then there's a change in our attitudes. Talks about teaching and singing, thanking and submitting to one another. And then there's a change in our actions. And he talks to the different relationships, husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters, or employee and employer, insiders and outsiders, and Christian and authority. And then there's uh, always talks about warfare and witness. And so it's just fascinating. Just as you kind of know that pattern, it can start to click in your mind. He's always going to tell you what Jesus has done and what that does for us. And then there's also a witness that we're to tell others how we built our lives on the rock, and you can too. All right, so listen to this. Colossians 3, um, verse 12. He's saying, whenever you see the word therefore, he's saying like, okay, in light of everything I've just written, this is what you should do, all right? Therefore, as God's chosen people, remember, he's reminding them who they are, holy and dearly loved, because sometimes we forget that. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if, you, if you, any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Have you ever wondered what to do when it comes to difficult relationship? You're just not sure, like, what is God's will for this situation? This is God's will in terms of how we treat other people. And it sucks sometimes, because people suck all the time, all right? One time, uh, Trevi had a friend, and they kept hurting each other's feelings. Since she was much younger, maybe 10 years old. And uh, she said, how many times do I have to forgive her? Because I said, you gotta forgive her. She said, how many times do I have to forgive her? And I said, well, you know what the Bible says, you know, what Jesus says, how many times you should forgive, right? And she said, I know, I know, to infinity and beyond. <laughs> it's like, no, that was Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> well, what Jesus said is you should forgive not just seven times, but 70 times seven times. Now, there's a difference between forgiveness and trust. Someone can break your trust. They have to regain your trust. But forgiveness should be given every time. Uh, Nelson Mandela said it this way, resentment is like drinking poison and hoping it hurts the other person. And so forgiveness is actually an exercise that's good for you, even if they never ask for forgiveness. Um, forgiveness, uh, if you pay attention to the news, you might have remembered a few years ago the tragedy at a church in South Carolina. Nine people shot and killed by a deranged 
racist young man who brought guns into an African-American church. And I remember watching um, right after these remarkable people forgiving him, even though he did not ask for forgiveness. And they were, um, I'll use the word, persecuted for being so forgiving. How can you forgive? Well, they were following the ways of Jesus, not the ways of the world. Doesn't mean you trust. Doesn't mean there aren't consequences. There are. And justice should be served. But if you do not forgive, it actually eats you up. All right? So he goes on to say, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Just listen to how beautiful this community. What if we were forgiving and lived with peace Right? We let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. What if we had peace and not anxiety? Right? Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And there you see the pattern. He starts talking about teaching and singing and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Then he goes into the different relationships, just like we saw in the others. Now I want to spend just a few minutes uh, on this phrase that we read earlier, the wrath of God. You ever heard that phrase before? Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down? Uh, is that good news or bad news? Okay, a lot of thumbs down. All right, um, what's interesting is right at the end of verse 25, remember how we're supposed to interpret the scriptures with the scriptures. When you read a phrase, you're not sure what does it mean. Try to see if the context gives you more clues. So earlier it talks about uh, and, and let me just reiterate, we, we talked about it um, when we talked, I think it was maybe Galatians or perhaps it was Ephesians. It was Ephesians. When he goes into this list, remember, he is writing to people of faith. And a big problem uh, in Christianity in the Western world is that Christians have tried to impose the standards that Jesus has for us on the world around us. And that's why the world has felt judged by Christians, because guess what? They have been. But that's not what it was supposed to be. We are to change, uh, allow God to help us change our lives, but not expect other people to live as if they have the same standards. And if we believe we have the Spirit of God and, and they do not have that access, they're still walking around without the Spirit of God, how can we expect them to live at this high standard when we're struggling to pull it off, right? So that's important. So he goes through that same list, and it's a list saying... If you live this way, it's like living the, the way you used to. And you didn't like it then. That's why you came to Jesus. Stop. You don't have to live that way anymore. It's a promise. But he does say this kind of behavior it is why the wrath of God is coming. So what does that mean? Well, at the end of verse 25, it uses another phrase. It says, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrong. Another way to say it is you reap what you sow, All right? Um, now, here's the, here's the problem. Some of us in this room, when we think of God, we think of a very angry God. And even the idea of a heavenly father is hard for us to understand, a loving heavenly father because we had a very angry earthly father. And so that's important to know. It's, it's very possible you and I, the view we have of God has a filter based on what people who represented God in our life acted like. And let me encourage you not to let the terrible behavior of others filter, be the filter through which you see the loving God who created you. 
All right? So keep that in mind. Some of us in this room have been victims of angry parents. Um, could have been physically, could have been emotionally, could have been uh, toxic. And to think that our view of God has not been affected by that is, is naive. Okay? Now, uh, that anger could have turned us into perfectionists. We've never really been happy with our performance, never felt like we could live up. Um, some of us, that dark thought in the back of our head, it's like what our moms or our dads used to tell us. It's like they're still in there. We can't get them out, right? Uh, for others of us, it has affected uh, even our relationships with other people. We are, have a hair trigger response. I shared the story when I shared the message on Philemon. I sound like my dad when I'm mad. Who sounded like his dad? Who sounded like his dad? Who sounded like his dad, Right? So this is important to know. So when we think of God's anger or God's wrath, we think of the evil version of anger, like we've seen on planet Earth, right? But anger, when expressed by God, is not sinful. Now, God is not vengeful. Um, he's not angry with us. In fact, he describes who he is when he has this conversation with Moses in Exodus chapter 34. So there's this remarkable moment, miraculous moment, mystical moment. Uh, he says this long version of his name. If you missed this series we did last year, it was super helpful. I'll try to remember to send you the link. It was called Get a New God, where we basically spent several weeks just walking through this long version of, G of God's name. His name, Yahweh, I am who I am. And then the long version of that is Exodus 34. Then the Lord called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. Here's what you need to know about me, he says. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin but I do not excuse the guilty. So his wrath comes as a response of his, as, because he's a loving God. Now think about this for a moment. I hate when evil hurts my children. It is justified anger, right? Sometimes we've been the victims of displaced anger or uh, triggered anger. They're angry about something that happened and they're taking it out on us, right? Um, but what the scriptures tell us and what we see over and over is love is what motivates God's anger. God loves all people. And when people so cling to evil for hundreds of years of God's warning, which is what it takes for God to finally do something, God finally allows the consequences to take over always in hopes of the individual turning back to God. Beautiful story, the people of Nineveh, evil Assyrians, did a lot of terrible things. And Jonah was sent to warn them that God will basically allow their evil to basically cave in on itself. And he didn't want to go. And then he reluctantly did, miraculously after being swallowed by a giant fish, <laughs> Uh, he goes into town, and they turn to God, and he is upset. And he says, he quotes the same passage. That's why I didn't want to go, he says. 
because I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, not wanting to send calamity. That's what I hate about you. I want you to bring justice to these evil people. See, we want justice, and God is always willing to extend grace. Now, there is still going to be justice. Inside, we need justice. We know there must be justice. God will make all things right, but it's not the way you think it will be, right? And so it's not an angry God finally getting vengeance. Um, There's this principle called redemptive withdrawal. Here's the idea. God judges sin, defeats evil, and works for the redemption of creation by withdrawing his protective presence thereby allowing evil to run its self-destructive course and ultimately to self-destruct. If you've ever had to deal with somebody struggling with addiction, sometimes the most loving thing is to let them go. And in that, sometimes as their life finally hits rock bottom, they finally are ready for help. So God is not an enabler. He is patient. Uh, and ultimately, he will give us what we want. And when we're in rebellion and we don't want him, he gives us that. And basically what we see um, is evil will self-destruct on itself. And so just like the story I told you earlier, uh, if you missed it, the basic gist of it was somebody was angry with God because of the consequences of the decisions she has made. She was blaming God with her, for her consequences. And the beauty is she can see God bringing good out of the terrible things she's done, as she's described. And that's the beauty of God. He can redeem even our worst moments. But he is a loving God, slow to anger. But his anger is justified. We want justice whenever it's somebody else. <laughs> we don't want justice we want grace, but he extends grace to everybody else. That's why Jonah was mad. He gave extended grace to people he didn't want grace extended to. God always extends grace further than we want it, but he will bring justice. And by his grace, right, uh, we can trust that Jesus took, here's the amazing part. When you think, why doesn't God do anything about the evil in the world? And the answer is, he did. He took it upon himself. That's what killed him. But he defeated it by raising from the dead. All right. Here's another way to describe it. Um, Here's how the cross reveals God's wrath. All right. God's wrath is one and the same as his decision to abandon people to their sin. It's redemptive in intent up until the final judgment. In other words, I'm letting you have what you want in hopes that you'll finally realize that's not what you want, right? Uh, It grieves the heart of God, and it's a strategy for causing evil to self-destruct. Some of this is from a book by Greg Boyd called uh, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. It's 1,400 pages, so I just summarized it for you. But I found it to be very helpful. And there's a 200 or 322-page version called um, Cross Vision, I think, that's really good. All right, let me summarize a couple thoughts. Colossians chapter 4, we're finishing up here. Uh, uh, 
if you, we were going to talk about Colossians and Philemon tonight, but we, I just did a message on Philemon. If you missed it, I'll include it in the notes that I send. Really encourage you uh, to, to read it. It is a time bomb, subversive letter written to end slavery in a world where 80% of people were enslaved. The Roman Empire. It was how the economy worked. It, for some, it was the only way to survive. It was where they lived. It's, it, and it was not based on race. You lose a battle, now you're enslaved. All right? And you could even become a bond servant. Hey, I owe you that money. How about I live with you for a few years and I'll work it off. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, every seven years they were supposed to let people go. All right? But Paul went above and beyond that. In Philemon, he says you should treat Onesimus as a brother no longer as a slave. And here at the end of Colossians 4, even as he writes, you know, treat each other with kindness, masters and slaves. Again, not that this, we have a filter that sees the evil slavery of the new world, right? This was still not good. It got worse. And then he says, masters, provide your slaves with what is fair and right because you know that you also have a master in heaven. He's leveling the field. And then he says, Tychicus is coming with Onesimus. Those names are fun to say. Very Greek. Our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. If you remember the story of Philemon, he is literally sending Onesimus back. Onesimus, a slave stolen from his master Philemon, runs away. The penalty of running away is death. He sends him back and basically exhorts Philemon to free him and see him as a brother. It's remarkable. I'm telling you, for us, it's hard for us to see it. It is a time bomb in history. Let me finish this, and then we'll do a couple questions real quick. Colossians 4, 2 through 6, devote yourselves to prayer. He's finishing up here, being watchful and thankful. Pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that you may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in change. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. This is a bad translation. That word is in the NIV. It says outsiders. I hate that word because that's not what it means. It means those who are without. So we have a come-as-you-are environment. Those who are without faith is what it means. And so by translating it as outsiders, it creates this line that is not actually there. Outsiders. You're an outsider. I'm an insider. That's a terrible. I shouldn't have used the NIV right here. My bad. Uh, but that's free because you'll see that word just three or four times. You go to the Greek, I'm telling you, it says those who are, who are without faith is the implication, yeah. And it says be wise in the way you act towards those who are without faith. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, here's what's neat about this. At Gateway, we are not trying to convert anyone. We are trying to help anyone who is searching for God and they're all around us. There's a big difference. You're not, we're not, don't take your Bible. I was about to hold my iPhone. Don't take your Bible. <laughs> this might hurt even more than a Bible and hit it over somebody's head. Some of us, that's what repelled us from faith is the way people try to impose their religion on us. We're just looking for people who are searching for hope and for God and help them. And they're all around us. All right, a couple questions. Yeah, Theodore. Yeah, do we know if uh, Philemon actually did? We do not know. I, I'm optimistic and think he would, because if you think about it, here's Tychicus and Epaphras and Onesimus, and they're all carrying these two 
that's a fun triple threat. Uh, they're bringing a letter to Colossians and a letter to Philemon. And then they read, here's how they would do it. They'd get together in their house church and then they would read the letter to the Colossians, to everybody in the house church, the Colossians. And then I'm sure, hey, let's read that one to you, Philemon. And they read it. Now, this is me conjecture. Uh, but I'm telling you, if he didn't read it in front of the whole group, if he read it by himself, knowing that here's his pastor with his former slave who could have kept running. Paul could have said, hey, here's some money. Keep going. Go further west. Right. Keep going. But he sent him back. It's, I'm telling you, it's revolutionary. He sent him back saying, this is now your equal. Uh, so I would love to think yes. Uh, but because they were written together and uh, we don't really know. And this is, again, AD 60. So it's near probably within five to seven years of when Paul died. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cindy, is it related? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I will say this. Yes, you're exactly right. I agree, said that earlier. But I will tell you, when on my sabbatical, I visited a bunch of churches, not just in Austin, but other places. And it is remarkable how diverse we are as a church. Like, I'm telling you, I visited lots of churches, and even churches where that's a value, I was amazed at how the city was not represented. So even, it, unfortunately, even now it's still remarkable, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Uh, but I, but we have a gift here, really. Uh, and so all that to say, what is interesting about Paul's approach is it's similar to our approach. And this, you know, you can come in no matter where you are, believer, not believer, Scythian, barbarian, slave, free, all that stuff. And and yet the the kernels of truth and the way you live this out, suddenly the implications are we're all equal. Everybody, men, I mean, think about this again. Women had the same spiritual gifts as men. So you can have the spiritual gift of leadership, teaching, prophesying. Man, we, some of us grew up in churches where women were not allowed to, on the stage. That is like literally contrary to the Bible. And they would use the Bible to try to keep it that way. But I'm telling you, you read the Bible for what it actually says, it's revolutionary. 